Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. On this episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Hala Elbermill. She is the Greenhouse and Gardens Coordinator with the Office of Sustainability at George Mason University in Northern Virginia. Welcome, Hala. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you are, like many of us, the wearer of many hats. <laughs> so we'll get into your uh, position at George Mason in a minute, but I wanted to talk about some of the other things that you have going. And then later on in this episode, we're going to talk about fruit tree grafting techniques and the cool things we can do with fruit trees. Um, but first, a little bit about you. Were you always into plants? And we always like to ask the question, were you born with chlorophyll in your veins? I like that analogy. <laughs> um, so initially when I got into, well, when I was a student at George Mason University, uh, I started getting into the sustainability field in general when I started working for the National Wildlife Federation. And after that, I started working for Clean Fairfax. And what really tapped in my interest in gardening and urban agriculture and fruit sustainability is when I took the permaculture design certification course at George Mason University when they used to offer it there. And after I graduated, I started managing uh, farmers markets in Fairfax County. And now I'm back at George Mason University for the working for the Office of Sustainability for the Greenhouse and Gardens Program. And I'm so excited to be here speaking with you today about our program and fruit tree grafting. That's so cool that you came kind of full circle back to where you started from. Yeah, it's great to see what's going on, and I really do enjoy working at Mason. So I imagine your day-to-day work is with uh, both faculty and students. Um, can you describe a typical day? Sure. Uh, so we have... Uh, we host hundreds of students and community volunteers. Uh, we have three main sites. Uh, we have the hydroponic greenhouse. Uh, we sell produce at the dining halls on campus, and we're potentially going to sell to farm stores to far- and farmers markets. And there's a permaculture food forest. Uh, it's a site that I manage, and we focus on fruit trees, perennial, and native species. And the third site that we manage is the organic vegetable garden. It's usually managed by students and it's typical gardening and with a compost pile. And we have a few other sites such as actually two started this year. Uh, We have the pollinator garden to help the honeybee initiative on campus. We've planted honeybee friendly plants on site. And we, this year we've collaborated with the biology department to work at the rooftop greenhouse and we're growing medicinal herbs, propagating perennials, growing, growing natives from seed. And we work with a lot of student interns, uh, student volunteers, and with community volunteers as well. And to um, and a typical day is like it's very hands-on, and uh, you get to learn. Like for example, you want to learn about the hydroponic greenhouse. Um, it's pretty cool. And if you want to get outside, um, the food forest or the organic vegetable garden. If you want to get into the dirt. So there is a little bit for everyone um, to try out different things and uh, anyone can get involved. You can uh, go onto our website on green.gmu.edu. It's green.gmu.edu. Wow. You sound like everything food related you're growing on campus, basically. Yes. And we're always expanding, which is really great. That's so cool. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're growing that goes into the cafeteria that the students eat? Yeah, so we've been growing microgreens 
and other hydroponic produce such as lettuce, uh, tomatoes, um, Swiss chard, parsley, cilantro. And this year, actually, uh, we've been growing strawberries hydroponically and uh, sweet peppers as well. And you can actually purchase these online produ uh, produce online soon. Uh, we've started an online store. Um, you can check it out on our website as well at green.gmu.edu. Sell, we sell live plants there, like for your vegetable garden, uh, also figs, herbs, native plants, and um, we sell uh, at-home microgreen micro grow kits to support entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial opportunities. And all the proceeds help support our students and community education. So hydroponically grown tomatoes and strawberries, they have a bit of a reputation for not being as tasty as field grown. What do you think uh, in your growing environment? How do they taste? I think our growing methods, um, what we use for our hydroponics, it's pretty good. And uh, we can grow year round indoors and um, the nutrients in the soil outside is a little bit different from the hydroponic greenhouse. But like the tomatoes, uh, the heirloom tomatoes that we have at the hydroponic greenhouse taste wonderful. Like imagine during the middle of December when the ground is solid frozen outside and you're like, I want summer back. So when you do, um, <laughs> we have the hydroponic tomatoes and it just brings you back to the good old summer days. Mm, great point. Yeah, and, and like all living things, the soil composition, where it's grown, can affect the taste. So we're all familiar, say, with terroir in our wines. And if one comes from a different region, but it's the same grape, it tastes different. But yeah, a strawberry in December sounds divine, especially locally grown, of course. <laughs> and, <laughs> and right around the corner from the cafeteria. So that's that's wonderful. So in one of your other hats that you wear it's as a lead market manager with fresh farm um, can you talk a little bit about fresh farm and your position there sure i would love to so fresh farm it's a nonprofit, and we have farmers markets in northern virginia dc and we have one in maryland and all of our vendors are local and they, um, they, they were producer only, which means that we do not allow resale and the vendors either have to grow or uh, make their own products. And um, with Fresh Farm, we support um, food insecurity. For example, all of our markets except SNAP, which is the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, which used to be called um, Food Stamps. And we do, we're doing great efforts, and especially in DC, with food prints and teaching uh, school children how to grow their own food and to make their own meals with, with the food that, that, that they've grown. And with the pop-up food hub, have, helping those who are low and secure with a, uh, like a CSA uh, box subscription. So I love working for Fresh Farm, helping with food insecurity and being out there, meeting new people, getting connected with farmers. It's a really great and beautiful community. I think one of the little known aspects about the SNAP program is that you can use SNAP to purchase seeds and edible garden plants. So like if a farmer's market is selling tomato seedlings, you can use your SNAP card to purchase that, correct? Yes, you can do that. And we also have unlimited match for SNAP as well. So in your other spare time, which I can't imagine is much <laughs> at this point <laughs> with these uh, two main positions, you also are the Director of Communication with Green Muslims and that's based in Fairfax, Virginia, correct? Can you tell me a bit about their mission and maybe some of the programs they're working on? So with Green Muslims, we promote sustainability efforts into 
with the Muslim communities and with we do also interfaith uh, events as well. And for example, during Ramadan, uh, right now it's actually Ramadan. I'm fasting, so Ramadan is like for the whole month. And we've been putting out uh, information about how to be more sustainable. In the past, we have leftovers, which is uh, when you bring your leftovers to an iftar. An iftar is when you break your fast and have a meal with other people, which is pretty cool. And with Green Muslims, uh, we really promote about being a khalifa fil ard, which means a uh, steward for the land. Because in the Quran, it says that we should protect the earth, that we should give back to the land, that we should make connections with the community members as well. Does a lot of that overlap, I imagine, with your uh, positions at Fresh Farm and at GMU? So Green Muslims, uh, we generally, it's we focus on different aspects of sustainability. So it's not just food justice. Uh, for instance, we focus on climate change, interfaith uh, events, and uh, we're for clean water, clean air, environmental justice. So it's like a all-around package. That sounds like a great experience to get to know other green groups in in the Northern Virginia area. Are there other groups that work together with the Green Muslims? Yes. So we have the Interfaith Power and Light. IPL, and uh, we work with different churches, uh, synagogues in the area, and uh, we've actually partnered with Whitehall Farms, uh, which is in Clifton in Virginia, to do the ODIG program in the past. ODIG is a summer program where we take out kids to different places, like such as farms, uh, to parks, and just to get hands-on experience with the environment, with local food. And I really do enjoy working with them. Well, Hala, it sounds like you are one busy woman and <laughs> have your fingers in, in a lot of pies, which is wonderful. So I have to ask, do you have a home garden? And if so, what's it like? Oh, yes, I do have a home garden. I um, actually also have experience with some farm animals, such as chickens, sheep, and ducks. Um, I am a chicken fanatic. I love chicken so much. <laughs> I'm the crazy chicken lady. I actually have um, these boots which have little little chickens on them. You probably, if you come to buy to the Oakton Farmers Markets every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., you'll see me with those chicken boots. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you name your chickens? Are they more like family members, or are you strictly growing them uh, for food? Yes, we have named them, and the chickens I've had in the past, um, we've had interesting names, such as Mrs. Sideburns, Bob. Bob was actually a hen. <laughs> <laughs> and Fluffy, the rooster. And chickens are really fun to see the interactions and um, to play with. They have a really great character. Hmm. I like Bob the chicken. That's a great name. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so in your home garden, are you mostly growing edible plants or do you have some ornamentals? And if ornamentals, what's blooming that you're really proud of right now? Right now we have the azaleas and they are gorgeous. Um, they create a, like a really nice screen between us and the neighbors right now. Hmm. And uh, we also have... We have a lot of medicinal and other native and perennial edibles as well. Like for instance, we have these fig trees on the property and apples, pluots. Pluot is a mixture between a plum and a nectarine. And uh, you know when spring is coming, when the asparagus starts coming up. And um, in the past, I've actually grown ginger and turmeric too. That was pretty. What I love about gardening is that you put something in the ground, you know, have some hope, put some seeds down and see what comes up. And I just love doing that. I can so relate to that. And with that ginger and turmeric, were you growing under a hoop house or a cover? How were you getting that to winter over? Or did you bring the containers inside? I actually harvested them in late fall. 
Okay. So you did it for the, the growing season. That's wonderful. Yes. And you can get like uh, the turmeric or ginger uh, from the from the grocery store and just plant them in a pot. That's what I've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's fun to go to a grocery store or a farmer's market and look for rooted pieces of things that are already a little bit started for you. And then you're like, "Ah, I can stick this in a pot or stick this in the ground and grow this. So that's, that's always a fun exercise. So you mentioned the, the pluots and the figs that you're growing in your home garden. Are you having to spray them at all or do any chemicals to knock down pests or disease? Or are you completely organic grower at home? I do not spray um, pesticides or herbicides. I uh, do the permaculture design um, methods such as, like for example, we have um, diversity, which is really important because when you have diversity, um, it helps to reduce pests. Um, And it also looks really beautiful when you have diversity as well. And I add, nutrients back to the soil constantly. So, yeah, so when you spray over time, um, you're actually hurting the plants, you're hurting the pollinators, and you just don't wanna do that. You wanna strengthen the plants and create a really beautiful biosystems for your garden. Yes, uh, plants that are healthier are obviously more resistant to disease and pests, just like, in humans and animals so that's a great point that the stronger the plant the more resistant it is so that brings us to our fruit tree talk and fruit tree grafting Um, so you recently gave an online talk i think on fruit tree grafting how was that attended actually it was in person Ah. oh yeah because i was going to ask this is a technique that we'll try to describe here to our podcast listeners, but it's something that you might want to go in person to see somebody do. Yes, when you get that hands-on ex- hands-on experience, because um, it's really hard to show it online. Uh, we do have the fruit tree grafting workshop on uh, May fourteenth, from four p.m. to six p.m. at the Innovation Food Forest. And you can visit our website, green.gmu.edu, to sign up for that. And at that in-person workshop, do you come away with some saplings that are grafted, or do you just practice on some of the trees that are at campus growing in the ground? Luckily, this year, we have uh, many of the scions, which is the branch of the tree that we like to graft on to the other tree. We have plenty of that, so you can take some home. And you can also practice as well, hands-on, which is really, really cool. Yeah, I think that's a technique that will take a little bit of practice. And and not all of the graftings take, correct? What do you think the percentage is um, for making grafts and then having them take? The important thing is to do it at the right time of year. For instance, uh, you start grafting when the leaves start uh, coming out the spring and the percentage is I'll just say there's a 95% or even like 85% that may not work your first time but you get better at it over time which causes more results. That's good to know that you know it a lot of the first times won't take but to try again it wasn't you. so a lot of things could be intimidating to beginners so you talked about timing when the trees are just starting to leaf out and i imagine putting on new growth and putting um uh, xylem going up and flowing so that helps the graft to knit together um what trees can you do this technique with sure so uh, fruit tree grafting is pretty cool in general. Um, what you do is that you take a part of, let's just say uh, you have a crabapple tree in your backyard that's already established, and but the fruit does not taste good. But your next door neighbor has these amazing apple, uh, apples that you would love to have in your yard. What you do is take that branch 
from your neighbor's yard with their permission, of course. You just don't walk in there. And then you can graft it on to your crabble, crab apple tree. And over time, it takes about two to five years for that fruit to be uh, grown onto that tree. And it's pretty much you're like a tree sur- surgeon. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. And what size of a cutting do you use from, say, the tree with the good fruit? Is it like a two foot long segment? Can you describe it a little more? So you usually take the from the first year growth, which is um, you can see it because it's like looks newer um, on the branch, and it's about a pencil sized shape. And to attach it to the existing tree, how do you cut into the bark, and at what point do you look for? Is is there a node or something that you're looking for to to make the attachment? The important thing is that everything lines up with it with the branches and the tree. Like for instance, there's different types of grafting and one we we covered on the workshop um, about a few weeks ago, you make an incision in the bark of the tree, in the trunk of the tree. Uh, It's more like a T. And then you slide down the branch, the scion, onto the trunk of the tree and you get some grafting tape and wrap it around and to make the like make sure that everything's close together and it's also important to um that the the veins of the plants are matched up together Hmm. and by veins can you describe that a little bit sure so when you are making the cutting it has to when you get the scion the branch you have when you first cut it it has to be flat and um, at a certain angle and when you put the two, the the veins, what I mean by that is so the nutrients can come up and down the branch. So the energy from the mother plant can go to the new branch. So basically the grain of the wood. So you wouldn't put it, if the grain was running horizontally, you wouldn't put it into a vertical situation. Yes. Ah, that makes sense now. <laughs> I'm just trying, yeah. to, trying to visualize it. So getting back to basics, really, how do you do the cutting? Do you use a paring knife, a sharp pair of pruners, and what type of um, sanitation or cleaning do you do? Because I can imagine that one of the issues with grafting might be to introduce a disease or a wound at that point. It is very important to keep all of your tools sanitized. So I would say get a disinfecting wipe if you are going to be grafting between different trees and before when you graft and afterwards as well. Uh, And the tools are required for grafting trees are a grafting knife or there are some like grafting shears that you can buy online and grafting wax or grafting tape. Um, so those are the tools that you will need to make sure that your grafting is successful. It's always great to work with the correct tools and <laughs> makes the job a lot easier. I, I remember watching someone graft some witch hazels together, which is not a fruit tree, but is another technique you can do to have different, different blooms on a witch hazel. And he actually used electrical tape and it worked. But I'm imagining that the grafting tape would have worked a little bit better. Yeah, and it looks a lot nicer when you use grafting tape as well. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a little less visible. So I'm always fascinated by what I call Franken trees, which are fruit trees that have several different varieties on them. Um, What ones do you like and to mix together and what varieties of apples or pears or anything else are you using um, for the grafting class. It's really funny that you called it a Frank, Franken tree, Frankenstein tree. Franken tree, yeah. <laughs> because uh, I've known it as a cocktail fruit tree. Ah, that's a great name, or fruit cocktail the other way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you can pair things that are in adjacent families. So you talked about crab apple and apple. What other things can you pair together? Uh, you can do the stone fruit, so anything that has a hard uh, seed in the middle. So think of peaches, plums, nectarines, cherries, nectoplum, pluot. You can graft any of those uh, fruits to each other. And 
you can do apple to apple, pear to pear. Have you done a tree where it's been several different varieties on one? Yes, we've done the uh, on campus with peaches and the nectarines, and we're going to do some more if you come to our um, our grafting workshop. Are there certain varieties that you recommend for the Mid-Atlantic area that are a little more disease resistant? Because sometimes growing fruit trees can be a little tough in our area because of our heat and humidity in the summertime. Um, I'm specifically thinking of some of those peach varieties. Interestingly, on campus, we do have these delicious white peaches at the Potomac Heights Vegetable Garden, and they've been doing well for many years, and we get so much fruit on them. And we've actually gotten some of the, the branches from there, and we'll be adding them to the other peach trees on campus, and you can take some home when you come to our workshop. So that's just a white peach variety. Yes. Cool. I was going to ask about your thoughts on gorilla grafting. Um, that's more popular, I think, on the West Coast than you will see on the East Coast, where people will take park trees, say a crab apple or uh, another tree at a park, and graft without the park's permission <laughs> onto those. Sometimes they'll use a street tree. And I've even seen people doing it to neighbor's trees. Like you're walking down a street in Oregon or in Portland, say, and the branch that's sticking out into the sidewalk area, I guess they think is free, free game. So they'll graft something onto that and it'll be a different variety than the rest of the tree. So have you seen that or experienced that? Uh, personally, I haven't seen that, but I think it's pretty cool. I mean, more food for everyone, why not? Yeah, I think as long as you get permission, I mean, it's less gorilla that way, right? Yes. But, <laughs> but it's interesting. And, of course, you want to be able to come back and either harvest or take care of that to make sure uh, that the fruit tree isn't um, harmed by what you did with the graft later on. And speaking of taking care of fruit trees, can you talk a little bit about maintenance on fruit trees as far as um, pruning them, maybe thinning out some of the emerging fruits to let some of the others ripen up? Sure, I would love to talk about that. Fruit trees, um, there are an investment and it's worth it. Uh, during, uh, it's always important to remove anything that's a dead, diseased, or crossing when you're pruning. And some people prune more in the winter and others will prune early spring. It depends what you prefer. Um, I would prefer to uh, prune in early spring because if you prune in the winter, all the water spouts starts coming up in the spring. But if you want to, don't want to deal with water spouts, you know, craft in the spring. And uh, with fruit trees, always add some mulch around the base of the tree. Don't do the, like the volcano <laughs> that you see um, people do with regular landscaping design. Uh, it's better to have a like a donut shape when you are putting down mulch. And uh, in the early spring, when the fruit is growing, they're usually like in a cluster, really, really close together. It's very important to remove the the fruits that are too close together and leave some behind. So all the energy would be into the growing the actual fruit and uh, reduce diseases and mildew. I know it's so tough, especially when you're a beginner fruit grower, to sacrifice some of those what we would call baby fruits because yeah. we're gre we're greedy for them all, right? We want them all to ripen. So if you don't go in and do the thinning, the fruit tree will drop, it's called a June drop, correct? Um, some of the excess fruit as well. Yeah, it's really cool how nature does it. Sometimes heals itself on its own. Mm -hmm. And even if you do the thinning, sometimes you'll still have a little bit of a June fruit drop because it's like, uh-uh-uh, too much on this branch. I can't, I can't have everything develop. Yeah, trees have a mind on their own sometimes. Another technique related kind of to fruit tree grafting is espalier growing of fruit trees so to make them more of a horizontal pruning technique like flat against a wall or a fence do you have any of those on campus 
Currently, we do not, but I am familiar with that growing method. Yeah, I think espalier is also one where you'll see what I call the Franken trees or, or fruit cocktail trees <laughs> already uh, done in place. So if you're a little shy about doing the grafting yourself to start, you can purchase some espalier trees that one branch is already one flavor of apple and one is another variety of apple. Um, so you can get that started for you and then practice with that. And on campus, you talked about the permaculture talk or course, sorry, that you had taken and were inspired from and do a lot of permaculture techniques to this day. What do you plant around your fruit trees to support them? Is it a specific ground cover? Sure. So around the fruit trees, we uh, do have uh, plants that help to cure pests, like for instance, we have onion chives or garlic chives around the base of the tree, or uh, sometimes we plant marigolds or other type of plants that instead of the cure, instead of going onto the tree, it would go to those plants instead, or it, it will deter the pests in general. I've also seen um, some of the herbs used, like borage, um, to, to good effect around fruit trees in permaculture situations. And that's nice to have that almost as a bonus crop as well as acting as a green manure. Yes. And we also do have comfrey mm -hmm. planted sometimes nearby trees. And they look really, really pretty when they start blooming their purple flowers in the summer and spring. Yeah. And comfrey is such a beneficial herb and also to the pollinators to have those flat, them visiting those flowers and then of course the the flowers on the fruit trees are you worried at all this season about the cicadas because you had mentioned that the thickness of the scions is pencil thickness and that sounds exactly like what the cicada, coming cicada horde is looking out for hopefully we'll plant enough like we'll implant enough scions that um we may lose some we might have some Cicadas. It just brings me back memories when I was a kid. <laughs> Are you planning on wrapping any of the branches for, from the cicadas or just letting what happened happens? Let nature take its course because uh, if it can survive the cicadas, it's going to be a good hardy branch. Hmm, true. And so those memories of the cicadas, are those happy ones yeah, I used to play with them all the time. And fun fact, <laughs> chickens love eating cicadas. They even go after their skins like chips. So if you got, just release chickens everywhere and they'll eat all the cicadas. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah, I've already seen the, the newly emerging cicadas, the, the early birds, so to speak, already being scooped up by, by the birds. Um, so I'm like, uh, definitely need that horde so you can get some survivors out of this because the birds are ready. <laughs> <for them. laughs> and they're not the only creatures who are like, hmm, that looks like something I might want to eat. I mean, some people eat them, but it's not my, to my taste palette, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say that's for, definitely for the adventurous eaters. And, and speaking of eating, do you have any favorite fruit tree recipes or ways that you prepare what you grow? Uh, you mean with uh, produce and herbs and such things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, pansies are edible. People usually plant them in the fall and they last until the heat of the summer. They're really beautiful, come in different colors. I've actually made pansy cookies. So what you do is like basically make a sugar cookie and get the pansies and make a glaze on the top, like an egg wash, and bake them. They look really pretty and gorgeous. And if you really want to wow your guests next time, including put if you bake the pansy cookies, also make like a lemon bomb sorbet. And so what you do is take like a cup of lemon balm, two cups of water, one cup of sugar, juice from one, one lemon, blend it up together, drain it, all of it, and then um, compost the leaves. And then you put the, the juice of the, from the lemon balm in the freezer and every hour or so you take it out and scrape it. And it, it looks really de decadent and really fancy. 
That sounds like a lovely treat on a summer day, especially. Yes. And you can also do watermelon sorbet I've made. And you can also do it with mint. Mm. And I just love exploring to see what's out there. And to put things together, like I've had guests over, made a salad with different greens and stuff. They were like, I've never tried dandelion leaves. I'm like, well, it's in your bowl right now. (laughs) (laughs) And that's so fun to try out different things and to experiment. And I hope I'm not making you too hungry uh, during your fast today talking about food. No, it's all right. I've been fasting since I was a kid. Like fasting builds character. Yeah, it definitely builds strength. And uh, speaking of building strength and bringing new experiences uh, with the students on campus, do you often find that this is their first gardening experience? And can you talk about some of those students and and working with them? Uh, I love working with the students on campus. Uh, What's great about George Mason University is the diversity of the students. They come from different backgrounds, they're just really cool to work with. Some of the students, they have a background of agriculture or sustainability. For example, this one student I've worked with like last semester, his family has a farm in Pennsylvania. He's very independent. I'd be like, hey, can you prune this tree? He's like, yeah, sure. And he does the tasks on his own. Some of the students have never, ever got into the, into the soil and worked with it. It's really interesting to see uh, students from all spectrums with skills and their interests and to put it all together. And it's what's really beautiful actually, we're working with students when they're volunteering is when they build friendship. And I just find that beautiful. For instance, when two people meet at the volunteer shifts, they're like, hey, this is pretty cool. Hey, I like you, let's hang out. And I just take credit for it. Why not? Yeah, that's great to be able to coordinate and, and see relationships build. And aside from the varying backgrounds of experience with agriculture that are coming into the school, they're also coming from different places uh, and maybe totally different growing zones. So I imagine they have a lot of questions about what we grow here in the Mid-Atlantic. What do they find surprising? Some of the students are from more tropical areas and they are sort of surprised that we can't grow mangoes or like bananas or other tropical fruit here. Other students are really surprised of what we can grow here, such as the maypop or the passion flower or figs. So, and it's really interesting. What I love about the diversity at George Mason University Sometimes I learn from the students myself because they might have a different growing method or different plants that I've never heard about. And it's great to get everybody together and just to discuss about that. And it's really lovely when you're working in the garden that you can have beautiful conversations and laugh and learn from each other as well. And those different perspectives are so eye-opening. I remember a friend who lived in the Caribbean their entire life, and they came to America and had their first apple ever, and they just marveled over the taste of it and you know, going to the grocery store and seeing the piles of apples. And I had never thought of an apple as an exotic fruit before. <laughs> it's, apples are the norm here. Yep. And they just don't import them to certain Caribbean islands, because why would you? Because they have tons of other wonderful fruits there. This one student, actually, um, she, like where she was from, they didn't have raspberries. They would have raspberries in the grocery store, but she never, ever tried fresh raspberries. Uh, So she actually had the opportunity when she volunteered at the permaculture food forest on campus. And she also got to try the Chinese date, uh, which is also called the, what's the Chinese date called? I don't remember the actual (laughs) other name for it. Um, Sorry, I don't remember. But uh, it's really cool for the students to try different different other things. Some of them are like, I don't like tomatoes. But when they try that fresh tomato, it it opens their world up. Mm -hmm. Oh, and Chinese date jujube. I ju- yeah, I just jujube, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, that is a different experience to see that growing on a tree. And you're like, oh, that's what that is. 
So that that's cool to have that experience and to to see that. And I think fresh, as you said, like with the raspberries and with tomatoes is a much different experience. And of course, when you grow it yourself, then it always tastes better, right? Yeah. So I imagine some students, they take away from the program experiences that they're going to bring home and grow. Do you ever hear from past students coming back to you? Yes, I've actually had students come back and like, oh, I haven't volunteered here for many years, but I'm here to uh, come back and help you all out. And they would say like, oh, I've grown this on my like backyard and now it's flourishing. And I love to hear those stories or from students who've never had experiences with growing anything. They're like, I got a brown thumb, but now they can grow many things and they're expanding their knowledge and sharing uh, the information with others. Yeah, I don't believe in brown thumbs or black thumbs. Me neither. <laughs> exactly. Uh, most of us gardeners know you have to make lots of mistakes before you, you get some good successes. Um, and that killing a plant is just part of the process, right? So any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Uh, I know you had mentioned the upcoming grafting class, I think on May 14th. And if a listener is listening to our podcast after that date, um, where would you recommend they, they get grafting experience or um, wait till next spring maybe? Or do you know of other area workshops? Luckily this year, we have plenty of uh, scions, which is the branches. So they can always come to campus and sign up to volunteer. And we can show them how to graft as well. Excellent. And can you tell them again how to get in contact with you or to check your website? Sure. Our website contains our online store and how to register to volunteer and about information about our grafting workshops. Our website is green.gmu.edu. It's green.gmu.edu. Well, Hala, this has been fascinating, and it's so wonderful to hear that this is going on at our local educational institutions and that agriculture is of so much interest, as well as home food growing, to our upcoming generations. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hardy ferns plant profile. Hardy ferns, those that are perennial to the mid-Atlantic United States, come in a variety of green hues, from the bright yellow-green of ostrich fern to the dark blue-green of the Christmas fern. Some ferns have dark stems like the maidenhair fern, and others have rusty brown parts like the tassel fern or cinnamon fern. The Japanese painted fern practically glows with its silvery highlights. Ferns can have many garden uses, from edging plants to ground covers, and even featured in containers. They are deer-proof and have few pests. They thrive in consistently moist, well-draining soils with lightly dappled to full shade. Most ferns also appreciate a top dressing of composted leaves. Colonies of ferns can spread and clumps expand over time. They are fairly easy to dig and divide in spring, once the new growth has emerged. Speaking of the new growth, is there anything cuter than the newly emerging fiddleheads in early springtime? Ferns are low care. Some may die back entirely in the wintertime in our region, while others hold on to their fronds during the cold months. By late winter, you will want to cut them back, though, as they will start to look a bit ratty and tired. From the lady fern to the royal fern, there is sure to be one that works well in your garden. Once you start collecting ferns, you may find it hard to stop. Hardy ferns, you can grow that. 
What's new this week? Well, first I want to thank a couple new listener supporters, Nancy Offmuth and Betsy Veith. Thank you so much for your contributions and for listening. In the garden world, my home garden has bloomed its head off this week. I've been able to cut roses, peonies, irises. (sighs) I think this might be my favorite time of year, but don't quote me on it. (laughs) Next week might be even better. So in the local gardening world, I've just come back from running our Silver Spring Garden Club annual plant sale, the Garden Mart at Brookside Gardens, and it was spectacular. The weather was a little bit off this year, but the gardener still came out. We had great plants brought in by the members. We had our local growers grow some fantastic selections from us, and we pretty much sold out. (laughs) Everybody's ready to garden this year, so a great success, and thank you to my fellow club members for making it a wonderful event. Upcoming events that I'd love to draw your attention to, I have to do another plug for the neighborhood just to my south, and that's Shepherd Park, D.C. Uh, They're having their annual garden tour on Sunday, May 16th from 2 to 5 p.m., and you meet at 12th and Eastern Northwest if you're in D.C., to pick up your maps and buy your tickets. And I want to call attention to the fact that we have a garden book club that we've been running for several years for Washington Gardener Magazine. It is free and open to anybody to join in the discussions with us. And we don't even ask that you've read the book (laughs) because a lot of times, you know, in our busy lives, we don't get to read everything, but at least have started it. How about that? And then join us for the discussion. So the next book club meeting is this summer and we meet quarterly with the seasons and we are discussing American Eden, David Hasek, Botany and Medicine in the Garden of the Early Republic by Victoria Johnson. We will meet on the evening of Thursday, July 15th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern via Zoom. You can go to the Washington Gardener blog and hit the RSVP button to register for that and get the Zoom link and join us for that discussion if you find that of interest. And another little-known garden event in the D.C. area that I wanted to draw your attention to is the Mountain Laurel Garden Club. They are in Western Maryland, and on Saturday, June 12th, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., they do uh, two events. They have a perennial plant sale on Saturday, June 12th, and then two weeks after that, they have their 20th Country Gardens Tour on Saturday, June 26th from 10 to 3 p.m. So if you are out that way of Northern Garrett County, check that out. And another garden event that I'd love to invite you to is a talk that I'm giving at four Brookside Gardens. And this will be, of course, virtual still online via Zoom. And that is on Ground Covers, Great Alternatives to Turf Grass. And that will take place Saturday, May 29th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. There is a nominal fee of $12 for the general public, $10 if you are a friend of Brookside Garden member. You can register for that through MontgomeryParks.org or Active Montgomery website. And I'm really excited about this one because I have been trialing many different ground covers over the years. And I'd love to share that knowledge with you. And there's a couple in particular that I've been trying out this year that are native shade evergreen perennials that I think might be that unicorn, (laughs) that perennial that might succeed in many different situations for local mid-Atlantic gardeners. So I'll be sharing a little bit more about that 
during that webinar. And if you are not available to participate and listen live on Saturday, May 29th, uh, those who register get a recording to watch, uh, I think, for a week or two afterwards if they're not able to participate in the live session. Well, that's a lot (laughs) I've shared with you today. And there's so much going on in the garden that I think I need to get out there and get ahead of some weeds. I want to wish you all happy gardening and happy spring. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.